0: Welcome to the Calvary Church Podcast. We're glad that you are here and that you can be a part of a recent service at TCC. So let's join the service which is already underway and listen to the message. I would like to give you three truths today about God. Very simple message. But what I believe about God And what you believe about God matters to how you interact with God. Matters how you interact. What you believe about God. And I think it was in the 90s sometime. I'm not exactly sure of the date. But the genre of reality TV became a part of our entertainment culture. And... Shows began to uh, come up where people would be showing, it wouldn't just be like a drama, a scripted drama. The reality TV was supposed to be that. It was supposed to be real people, and it was showing you a glimpse of people's lives. And so in the 2000s, early 2000s, is when it really became uh, a prominent feature in entertainment. And shows like American Idol and Survivor and some of those became pretty prominent in our entertainment culture. And reality shows uh, are intended to give you a glimpse, to give you a window into the reality of things. And we've demonstrated and entertainment and culture has demonstrated that people have a desire to see that kind of thing. And so these reality shows, maybe some of you might have heard of a show called Duck Dynasty or a show that demonstrates some kind of life element. And they would would show you some kind of storyline about somebody's real life. And while it was called reality TV, a lot of critics, and when you look behind the curtain of reality TV, you realize that in a lot of ways, it's scripted. What they show you is not just real life. They tell them what to say, what to do in a particular moment, and ultimately, it affects what people believe about certain things. Traveling outside of the U.S., traveling outside of America, when you go to some foreign countries, what people believe about America is what they see on television, the shows that they see, the the things that maybe are demonstrated in those shows, or even the music that they listen to, the storylines that they might hear in our music, oftentimes is how people perceive what reality is. Now, Uh, Again, I think some of us could agree that there are some things on reality TV that, you know what, that does happen more than we want to believe. But we would probably also say that what is on television, it doesn't truly reflect who we are as a people. It's for entertainment value. And I'm saying that. Because when it comes to how we view God, I think sometimes we have this perception of God that comes from different sources. It's different ways that we per- perceive God. And, and it's possible that we can have a, an image of God, a thought about God that actually doesn't come from his word, but actually comes from other people's perceptions or other people's comments about God to us. And culture can certainly sway how people view God, how they view the church. And so the question is, what what does your God look like? What is the God that you serve? How does he interact with people? What is he like? And probably depending on how you grew up and, and things you were around or people you know, oftentimes determines what that view of God is. Some people view God as the, the cosmic cop, the killer of fun. That's how they view him. And if you listen to culture, you'll realize that a lot of people spew that all Christianity is, all that God's trying to do is keep you from having fun, keep you from living out your best life. Then there's the Luke Skywalker God. I, I, I'm not as into Star Wars as other people. In fact, I've never seen it. Um, but Audrey lets me know what's going on with Star Wars sometimes. But the Star Wars God is some energy field, some formless, faceless, impersonal energy that's out there. And people think God is like that, and they live their life as if God is some disconnected energy in the world and then there's the vending machine god father christmas the god who exists to give me what i need and so maybe you've prayed the prayer god if you're real give me a million dollars and i'll believe that you are real that we somehow interact with god on a I'm going to do this, if I do A, B, and C, then God does A, B, and C. That he's a vending machine kind of God. But I want to offer three truths that I find in scripture about God. You may have other truths that you've found from time to time, but I'm going to give you three simple truths that I want you to consider today. Number one is the truth that God watches us. God is watching us. God's eyes are on us. I believe that today because His word tells me that. Second Chronicles 16:9, "For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to Him. God's eyes go to and fro through the earth." In Proverbs chapter 15, verse three. It says the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. I think it's important that you have that belief today, that God is watching you. Now, we like to use that belief with our kids, right? That's a great manipulation tool. Let me just tell you right now, it's a good one. You should try it. If you haven't, try it. God is watching. I may not see everything, but God is watching you. Has anybody ever used that? No? Uh, am I up here all alone? <laughs> Brother John, I know Clinton's heard that phrase probably once or twice. God is watching. And I think it's important that we believe that. That God is watching. That God is paying attention. That we're not just living this life disconnected from the attention of God. That God is paying attention to the things that we do, how we interact in the world. I, I, I think it's pretty important that you, you and I understand that. I've been to Singapore uh, a few times over the last number of years. And, and one thing I noticed in Singapore one day, I was jogging through the city. And I was jogging, and I noticed as I came to different intersections, everywhere I went, there were cameras. Everywhere there was not a place that I went that I did not notice a camera and who knows how many cameras I did not notice But they're watching everywhere people go. They're watching they're watching and I love Singapore. It's a beautiful place, but they're watching And I think it is important that we have that perspective that God is paying attention I think it's important the decisions we make, the things that we say, how we interact with people that we believe that God is watching. And I think that some people stop here in their relationship with God, that they say, you know what, I believe God's watching, but, and they just go on. But I I, want to add to that. I believe that God is watching, but I don't believe that God is just a spectator in life. I don't believe that that's his sole existence And his sole interaction Is that he is just simply watching us But the second truth that I want to tell you today Is that God not only sees you But God knows you God knows who you are He doesn't have a general sense of knowledge about you He knows you very specifically He knows you by name He knows you by how you interact in life. He knew your parents, your grandparents, your great-great-great-grandparents. He knew you can keep going back. God knows every aspect of your life. David said, oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down. You know my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. Isn't that interesting? God's just not up there watching in a general sense like, have you ever flown in an airplane and you see the cars going back and forth? That's such a cool perspective. There's a general sense of what is happening on the ground. But no, God gets into the middle of our lives. He understands exactly who you are. He understands what time you got up today. He knows what what time you got in your car. He knows where you went. Even more than, than Apple knew what I did today. They knew a lot about what I did today. God knows every aspect because God isn't just digging into your activity. The Bible says God knows our thought from afar off. He knows what you're thinking. I'll tell you what, nothing scares me as much as the technology that they're trying to come up with that trying to read your thoughts that's a scary thought what if, what if we could read each other's thoughts in this room what if we had the google glasses on and i could tell what you were thinking i would quit i know i would quit okay i know that but god doesn't just know our activity he knows our thoughts He knows the intricacies of our thoughts. He said, you comprehend my path, my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. And Jesus said, are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them, not one sparrow is forgotten by God. But the very hairs of your head, limited or unlimited, the hairs on your head are numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. God is watching. He's perceiving what's going on in the world. But he's also watching your very steps and your very thoughts. That's important for us to know. That God is not disconnected from the reality of your life. And I pray that some of you would have that experience of truth, that God really knows you. That God really does know that of the billions and billions of people that exist on the earth. God actually knows your name. He knows what's going on in your life. Not in a general sense. He knows the details of your life and he cares about it. There have been times in my life. And I thank God for these moments. And I'm praying that each of you can have a moment like this where you realize, you have uh, uh, no doubt that God knows you are on this planet. Where I've been praying about things. Privately, things that are going on in my life and somebody comes up and God uses them in the spirit to speak to me about things that are going on in my life that they had no idea about. It's just a reassurance to me that God knows us. He knows you. And so, God sees us. God watches us. God knows us. But God is more than that school principal who knows who you are and has the file of incident reports of all the things that you've done wrong. And when you walk into school, he can call you by name. He can say hi to you. But you know he's keeping record just in case. But God is more than that. And the third thing and the final truth about God that I think you should know is that God loves you. God loves you. God sees you. God knows you. But God loves you. See, we've heard it so many times that it kind of loses. It doesn't have an emphasis to it. But it's a powerful truth that if you lose that, the enemy can absolutely create fear and shame and guilt and doubt in your life. If you don't have the truth and don't know the truth that God loves you. See, God wants A relationship with you. So when we talk about a perspective of God, that is, God sees us, God knows us. But why does God know us? Because he wants to have a relationship with us. But in order for a holy God, in order for a holy God to interact with people who are unholy, something has to happen because God's holiness cannot stand in unholiness. God's holiness cannot interact with unholiness. And that's a very important truth. Because when we we see God, we see God. The Bible says God is holy. God is separate. God is apart. He is holy. But he wants to have relationship with people who are unholy. So the Old Testament gives us this picture of how God, a holy God, would begin to interact with an unholy people. And we find it in the, the picture of the tabernacle. In the Old Testament, we get a picture of God's love for us through the tabernacle. And in the, the tabernacle, this sacred place, it's a, it's a place that, as Kristen talked about in Growth University a few weeks ago, about the Day of Atonement, once a year, In this tabernacle, the priest would come before God. They would enter into what was called the most holies, the holiest of holies. It was the holiest place of all. It was set aside for God. In one day a year, that priest would have to become holy. He would do everything he could from his garments to his body. Everything he would do would be to stand and say, I am as holy as I can be. And then there would be a spotless lamb, a holy, a purified sacrifice that he would have to carry into this tabernacle and inner courts and ultimately into the holiest of holies. And he would stand there, one man once a year would stand in this most holy place and he would interact with a holy God and God would push back the sins of the people. He would agree to say, you know what, I'm not going to judge you this year. I'm not going to punish you this year. But it all rested on one person to be holy. It rested on one individual who would say that they are as holy as they can get. And there was a sacrifice that was pure and holy. And so the Day of Atonement was a sober day on the Jewish calendar. In fact, it was so sacred That life and death literally hung in the balance. It hung there, suspended, waiting, determining whether or not the high priest and the sacrifice were holy. And so that day would come and that high priest would enter and a holy God would interact with people. Now when it comes to the holiest of holies, We talk about it. Many of you have heard of the tabernacle. You've heard of this. And there in the tabernacle, there is an outer court. Then there's the inner court, which is inside of the tent. And then inside of that tent is another area called the holiest of holies. This is where God would show up. And it would be similar to how people, many people, not everyone, but many people view a church building as a sacred place. It's a sacred place to many people, and so we have people who come in our parking lot uh, throughout the week, and many times we'll see them parked down at the end or parked over here, and, and I've been, I've went up to people in the parking lot just asking them why they're here, what, what they're doing, and, and many times they will say, I'm just here praying. I'm just here just getting my thoughts together, just thinking, had a moment, and I wanted to come pray, because they see this place as a sacred place, and so they they are on the outer courts. But then we know that there are people like you who walk into this place, and you're willing to come into this place and worship God. And we thank God for that, and we thank God for uh, just the opportunity to come. But many people feel like they can't even walk into a church until they get their life right because it's kind of a sacred place. It's a It's a place that's set aside for the worship of God. And then inside of this sanctuary, if I were to ask you, what is the most sacred place inside of this sanctuary? Many of you would say it's this altar and it's this pulpit. When people stand behind here, there is a reverence that is given to this place. And and it's like the holiest of holies. Now, let me just say that I don't feel like I'm the holiest person in the room. All right, but it's the picture, it's the visual of the sacredness of the space. There's an outer core, inner core, and then there's this holiest of holies, this place where God would meet. And this is how this holiest of holies was so significant. And inside of this place, like there's a pulpit standing here, there was an ark that stood in that room. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. Why was it called the Ark of the Covenant? It was called the Ark of the Covenant because it was a piece of furniture that represented relationship. It was the Ark of the Covenant. People who were in covenant with their God and God would show up to them. Ben Rodriguez and I were talking the other night, I think when the Day of Atonement series was going on in the apt time. Many people assume and kind of think that the holiest of holies had one piece of furniture in it, and it had the Ark of the Covenant in it, and that is true. But actually, when you look at the description of the building of the tabernacle, you realize there were two pieces of furniture actually in the The holiest of holies And it was the ark of the covenant It was the ark of the covenant That had the ten commandments And the rod of Aaron that budded And the manna from heaven It had the container of God's relationship with people And in reality That holiest of holies Was a place of judgment It was a place where God would decide If he was going to punish his people For their sins But there was a seventh piece of furniture In that room and it sat on top of the ark of the covenant and it was called the mercy seat And the mercy seat was designed separately. It was was his own piece of furniture. And it was in that holiest of holies that God said, not only am I going to judge the people, he said, but I'm going to provide a way for my holiness to descend to unholy people. And the way it's going to happen is because of the mercy seat. I'm going to allow. Although my word declares that humanity has to be judged for their sin, I'm going to declare mercy is present in my holiness. Oh, hallelujah. And so God allowed with that blood from that sacrifice to be applied to that mercy seat. And God said, I'm making a way for a holy God to connect to an unholy people. And it was exactly what the picture of Christ was. Christ represented that entire picture. He was our high priest, and he was our spotless lamb. One man went in there and poured that blood and applied that blood, and out of that was forgiveness. So when Christ hung on the cross... As both the high priest and the spotless lamb what happened in the temple the veil as Kristen talked about the veil was ripped in two and God said I'm not just standing afar watching I'm not just knowing who you are but I'm gonna make it possible for a holy God to have relationship with everybody everyone in the world I'm making it possible And so he split that veil in two, saying that that mercy that was represented in the holiness of God is now available to everyone who wants it. And if you're here today and you need the mercy of God, you've fallen from God, let me tell you today, that's why he died. That's why he was buried. That's why he rose again, to bring you and I mercy. Oh, hallelujah. And so Hebrews says, but Christ came as the high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered into the most holy place once and for all. How, what, and what resulted? Having obtained eternal redemption. Redemption. Oh, hallelujah. You and I have the opportunity to be free from the guilt and shame of sin. And so Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's why he came, not to condemn the world, but to actually make the mercy seat something that could be applied to every human being. So God chose to express his love towards us. So David, David said, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sin. In other words, he hasn't given us what we deserved, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He knows you today. And he knew that there was the capacity for sin in your life. But he said, I'm making a way for mercy to reign. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over and it is gone And its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord. But the mercy of the Lord. Is from everlasting. To everlasting. From everlasting. To everlasting. That's a great hope for me today. That's a great hope for me today. Thank God. For his mercy. As I near close. When we consider. Mercy, there's a character in Scripture, in my opinion, that deals with mercy. It's the life of Jonah. We see a man who not only experienced the mercy of God for himself, but he helped bring the mercy of God to others, even if he was reluctant to do so. But when we look at Jonah, and Jonah... God tried to tell him to go preach to this city called Nineveh. He wanted him to preach to this wicked city. And Jonah didn't want to. Jonah didn't want to preach to this city. In fact, so much so that he gets on a boat with some pagan sailors and says, No, I'm not going to do this. But what did Jonah know? And why did Jonah not want to preach to those people? Why did he not want to preach to the city of Nineveh? I'll tell you why. Because he knew something about God. He knew something about God. What did Jonah know about God that made him say, I don't want to preach to these people? See, Jonah hated these people. Hated them. And some believe that they might have even killed his family and he had this disdain for them and jonah knew something about god that said i don't even want to preach to him and this is what it was in jonah chapter four verse two therefore i fled previously to tarshish for i know that you are a gracious and merciful god Slow to anger, abundant in love and kindness, one who relents from doing harm. The reason Jonah didn't want to preach to those people is because he knew that God would forgive them. His hatred for them was so strong. He hated them so much that he said, I don't want to preach because I know something about God. And I tell you today, you need to know this about God. God is merciful. God is slow to anger. He's full of loving kindness. He's a gracious God. And the enemy tries to convince us that God doesn't care, that God's aloof, or God hates us, and God doesn't like us. No, my friend, that's a lie of the enemy. We serve a God who is loving and kind. And Jonah knew it. Jonah knew it. And he said, I, I don't want to do it because I know, I know how God is. Yeah. You ever had those people in your life? You just knew what they were going to do it was going to be so awesome and you were going to look so terrible as a person. <laughs> Jonah knew, Jonah knew this is the type of God that we serve. And so, you know the story, Jonah gets on that boat. And a lot of times I want to add a little component here to Mercy. A lot of times we think of mercy as the moment. God forgives our sins. We're free at that moment. And that's mercy. But I want to add another component to mercy. Because when Jonah gets on that boat, and that storm comes, right? A storm comes. And they're all scared. What are we going to do? Jonah knew. Actually, that storm's from God. And that storm is about me. They throw him in the ocean, and a big fish—I'll use the biblical word—fish swallows Jonah. Now, I personally believe it was a blue whale. That's a, you can—that's that's my pro- professional opinion, based on my study of science and biology. Blue whales are like—you can put three school buses, four school buses in a blue whale. All right. So they throw him in the ocean. He gets swallowed up by a whale. But what I understand about mercy is this. Mercy isn't just an event, one event where God forgives. Mercy many times is a no. Many times it affects our direction. It challenges us. It's sometimes difficult. Mercy sometimes is difficult because when you consider The mercy that God gave Jonah. That storm was was mercy. That storm was mercy. That ocean was mercy. That fish was mercy. It didn't feel like mercy in the moment, but it was mercy. God saying, no, 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 no. Stop, stop, stop. And finally, we read in Jonah 2 verse 10. So the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry ground. Vomit was God's mercy. (laughs) Write that down. You'll (laughs) want to study that this week. But mercy isn't just forgiveness. Many times it's God's interaction in our life where he stops us. He says, wait a second, this is not right. In the 1970s, my dad... uh, left the church at about 18 years old. And through a series of circumstances, you've heard me talk about it before, but he left the church around 18. And as he got into his 20s, the Lord was dealing with him, trying to restore him. But he wasn't quite surrendering everything to the Lord. And so in 1977, happens to be the year I was born, 1977, my dad was in a competition for weightlifting and in, it was the Olympic trials he got into weightlifting and was doing that as just something he did and in those Olympic trials as he was preparing for that he threw that weight up in the air and when he did his ankle snapped and it really caused him he finally recognized that God was trying to get a hold of him And you could say that mercy looked like a broken ankle. And I bet there are some stories in here, some things that have happened in your life. It's not just the forgiveness of sins that you recognize God's mercy, but it's some of the stops that God has put in your life. It's some of the difficulties that seem to be in place that God is saying, you know what? My mercy is still real. I'm still reaching for you. You stand with me this morning. I conclude with this final illustration. Her name is Charletta Evans and she still has the clothes of her little boy who would not live to become a grown man. Cason was his name. He was just three years old when he was shot to death. It was December 21st, 1995, when Kaysen was killed in a drive-by shooting. 21 bullets rang out in this gang warfare, and this drive-by shooting, and it was directed at the wrong car. And Kaysen was killed. Raymond Johnson, who was 15 years old at the time, was arrested as the shooter. 15 years old. And as a teen, Raymond Johnson was sentenced to life behind bars without the possibility of parole. And it was while he was in prison that his life changed. And during his punishment, his confinement, they would reduce his sentence to life but with the possibility of parole. And years passed, and through a series of events, Charletta Evans agreed to meet with Raymond. The mother of this three-year-old boy agreed to meet. And so they decided on a meeting date, and they met in a prison. For eight hours, they spent eight hours talking. No doubt it was emotional. But after those Eight hours, the mother of that three year old boy comes out of that prison and she makes a decision. I'm going to forgive Raymond. But forgiveness and mercy wasn't just a statement that she was going to make to the press. But at the end of that meeting, she said, I grabbed his hand. She said, I wanted to touch the hand of the person responsible for taking my son's life. And I wanted to touch him so that it would be real to me that I forgave him. And she looked him in the eyes She said, I forgive you. But she did something else that to me is amazing and something that really... Grips my heart. She said, I left there, I hugged him, and I accepted him as my son. She said, I can truly say, I love the young man, and I love him enough to take him as a son and care for him. A reporter asked her, how could you accept the killer of your son as your own son, now she said I didn't want him to suffer anymore because he had such a hole in his heart for taking my son's life and so twice a week she talks to him on the phone she goes up and visits him and she gives him money now that's beyond human reasoning but it's the best example I've ever heard The closest thing I've ever heard to how God loves us. You and I, as I mentioned last week, have done everything we could in our sin to oppose God. We were enemies of God. But God said, while you were still sinners, I'll die for you. Why would God die for us? Why would God love for us? Why would Jesus Christ die for us? Because he wanted relationship with us. He would invite us into his family as I talked about last week. And I want you to understand today. I don't know what you, where you are on the spectrum of your belief in God. I don't know where you're getting your views of who God is. God does watch us from a distance. God does see us going to and fro. And God does know us very intimately. He knows every detail of our life. But let me tell you, never forget that in all of that, God loves you. God cares about you. God allowed a sacrifice to be made so that you could find new life, so that a holy God could come into contact with an unholy people, and he would tell us, be ye holy, for I am holy. How are we holy? Through Jesus Christ. And today I want to pray for you. And this is what I felt all week. This is what somebody needed to hear. Micah seven eighteen. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgressions of the remnant of his heritage. Watch what he says about God. He does not retain his anger forever. Because he delights in Mercy I felt somebody needed to hear that Today God Delights in being Merciful God delights In being merciful That's why the writer says who for the Joy that was set before me Enduring the cross despising the Same Jesus Christ Delights in giving You mercy I want to pray for you In closing, Lord God, we come to you in this moment. God, we come to you. God, with different perspectives of who you are and how you interact with us. God, many, God in this room, have had some tough deals in life. They've had some even, some hurt and some pain. God, as it relates to church and people who were supposedly godly. Lord, and I'm praying today, I'm praying today that you would demonstrate your love in this room today. God, that your mercy would be present for those, God, who maybe think that you are just distant, that you don't really care. God, I pray they would draw near and they would sense that you're walking near them today. You're reaching out to them today. You're calling them into relationship with you. Maybe someone, God, who has been distant from you like my father. Lord, you're reaching for them, Lord, today. And you're calling them and saying, no, I still love you. I still care for you. That's why I went to the cross is so I could love you and show you mercy. Oh, God, I pray today that your mercy would flow in this room like a river. Let it flow in this room like a river.